Morning, everybody. You guys like my title slide today? It's upgraded. I've increased the font. So it was like a 30, and now it's like a 36 or something. So that's pretty cool. Recap from last Sunday. What does this have to do with anything? I actually just forgot it here, and I just saw it, but... Life's like a vapor. If you missed it, you should probably check that sermon because we asked this question. We asked the question, what drives you? And then we showed this little diagram. And in this diagram, there's three circles that represent. Each circle represents a life. It represents your life and my life. The first one is like a, a, someone who has not yet accepted Jesus. The S stands for yourself. And you're seated on the throne in your life. And Jesus exists, but he's not yet in your life. And then when you cross that, that line there, you, you have to have faith to do it, and you accept the Lord Jesus. And I just want to pause there for a second and explain something I said last week. I said that accepting Jesus as your Lord and Savior is really easy. It's like A, B, and C. And I'm going to explain that again. I'm just going to put that into a little bit bigger context. Accepting Jesus as your Savior is exactly that easy as A, B, and C. The A stands for just admitting that you're uh, a sinful person and that you are a sinner. And then the B stands for believe in your heart that God raised Jesus from the dead and Jesus is who the Bible says he is. And then C just says confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and invite him and his Holy Spirit into your life. That's as simple as that is. And yet, you could spend months studying scripture and understanding the theology and the history and the symbolism it is so deep and so rich you would have to actually literally travel the world to understand to try to comprehend and understand these things and you probably could never actually come to full comprehension of that huge plan but in that moment when you accept jesus as your king it's actually a really simple step And then for the rest of your life, when you acknowledge that Jesus is now the King and Lord of your life, He's sitting on the throne, you are still alive, and so you're still in your life, but you're no no longer on the throne. You're not in charge of your life anymore. Jesus is. The problem is, after that, we tend to struggle and waffle between Jesus being on the throne of our life, or sometimes we like to climb back up on the throne and include Him in our life, but He's no longer in charge. That's where we struggle. And so last week we asked this question, what drives you? Is it your selfish motives that are driving you or is it actually Jesus? So this morning, I'm going to pray in a little bit of a different way than I sometimes pray. Do you guys understand that Jesus is the King of Kings? If Jesus is the king of kings, who are we? We are his. He's the king. In the analogy of a king, who are we? Subjects, servants. The Bible sometimes uses a military analogy. In the military analogy, who are we? If he's the king, we are the soldiers. Who do we report to? The king. Okay, is this complicated? <laughs> I thought, I'm just gonna, I want to make sure you guys know what I'm thinking before I pray. Is, if Jesus is the king, 
is it okay to understand that we would be a soldier or a servant? It makes sense in the analogy, and Scripture actually uses it quite a bit. How do you address a king? If you're a servant, let's say, how do you address yeah, your, your highness, your majesty? Exactly. And if the king happens to be your military commander, how do you address him? Let's pray. Jesus, I stand before you today, Lord. I love being your servant. It is a privilege to be your soldier, Lord. And so I stand here reporting for duty, sir. I love you, Lord. We are going to declare your truth this morning, sir. You are the King of kings and Lord of lords, and it is a privilege for me to be a soldier in your army, Lord, and I look forward to taking orders from you, sir, because I want to know you, and I want to make you known, and I desire for you, your Holy Spirit, to stir in us this morning, Lord, that this would become something that is genuine and true in our lives. We look to you, your majesty. Amen. Last week we asked the question, what drives you? And today we're going to say, we're just going to declare some truths of what should drive you, okay? We reflected a bit last week. And I'm going to just, there's maybe a bunch of reasons scripturally what should drive you. Today we're just going to, I'll just lay some of them out at you, okay? In other words, we're asking, so when you ask the question, why did you buy that house or why did you not buy that house? Why did you take that job or not take that job or spend that money the way you did or didn't? Why didn't you watch that movie last night or why did you watch that movie? Those kind of questions. What do you do with your spare time? What do you not do with your spare time? And so on. What is it that's driving us? That's what we asked last year, uh, last, last year, last week. Because the truth is that you can do things that look really good on the outside, but you could actually do them for the wrong, out of the wrong motivation. For example, when the offering basket comes along, you could, when it comes past you and you're sitting there and you're some people beside you on the bench, you could <clears throat> clear your throat and kind of pull a 50 out of your pocket and shake it a few times and let, oh, sorry, my 50 slipped out. I just put it back in there. And you could do that. And, and is like giving to the Lord is a command in Scripture, actually. But if you did it in that way, is that what should be motivating us? Is that a good way to... Is that a good motivation? Does it look like a fruit out of good motiv motivation? No, it doesn't. But the next person gives $50 and it's out of perfect motivation. So it's not actually the giving of the $50, it's actually what motivates us, and I'm, today we're going to look at what should mo be motivating us. Number one, I am going to propose that what should motivate us is fear of the Lord. I'm going to explain that a little bit. We could talk about this for quite a long time, I'm just going to whip through this really quick. As an example of some, how fear of the Lord ought to motivate us, We'll look at Ephesians 5.21. It's just one example in Scripture. But it says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And if you look in a Greek Bible, if you take a Strong's Concordance, that word reverence actually is fear. It's the same word. 
I think it actually is like G5401, that same, anyways, it's fear, okay? Submit to one another out of exactly fear of the Lord, is what it's saying. So if, we, if that is our motivation for submitting to one another in relationships, what exactly is fear of the Lord? Let's touch about that a little bit. First, I'm going to say this. Fear of the Lord is necessary for a believer. We know this from Philippians 2. It says this, continue to work out your salvation with... Okay, you guys read the yellow. Continue to work out your salvation with... And trembling. 1 Peter 1, 17... Since you call on a father who judges each person's work impartially, live out your time as foreigners here in reverent fear. Dennis actually mentioned that in Sunday school this morning. So if we look at a definition of fear of the Lord, a, con a conceptual definition, let's look at Exodus 20. Moses, remember we talked about being on the mountaintop a while back. This is the same story we were talking about then. When the people saw, this is the Old Testament, the Israelites are gathered on the mountain, and there's something exceptional happening on the mountain. God's presence is there. When the people saw the thunder and lightning and heard the trumpet and saw the mountain in smoke, they trembled with fear. They stayed at a distance and said to Moses, Speak to us yourself and we will listen, but do not have God speak to us or we will die. And then in verse 20, he says, Moses said to the people, Do not be afraid. God has come to test you so that the fear of God will be with you to keep you from sinning. The people remained at a distance while Moses approached the thick darkness where God was. Isn't that interesting? Moses said to the people, Don't be afraid, but have fear of the Lord. That's a good definition of fear of the Lord. We are not to be afraid of him because when people are afraid, just like these people did, they wanted to shy away from God's presence. But Moses had a healthy fear of the Lord, and what did it lead him to do? It says right there, he approached God. His fear of the Lord actually drew him in to God, not running away. But if you're afraid of God, you'll run away. But that's fear of the Lord actually is a respect and an awe. And such a high level of reverence for the Lord, we are drawn to Him. That's what fear of the Lord is. And so if you don't have fear of the Lord, generally speaking, you kind of have two options. Either you just have no fear at all, and that might summarize some non-believers who just have no, no fear at all. No fear of man, no fear of God. They don't have anything. But what, and I just mentioned it, what is another common fear of that we have in the church, out of the church? It's a pretty common one. Fear of who? Man. And so I want to just touch on that a little bit because fear of the Lord should be our motivator. But sometimes fear of man jumps in there. Jesus gives this instruction in Matthew chapter 10. He says this, Do not be afraid of those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Who is that? Who can kill your body but not your soul? People, man, exactly. Rather, be afraid of the one, capital O, who can destroy both soul and body in hell. He's actually commanding us that we ought to have a fear, a reverent fear, like First Peter said. While we are temporarily living here, we ought to have a fear of the Lord. 
There's lots of examples in the Bible about fear of the Lord, but I'm going to give you one out of Exodus. This is just before Moses was born. And the Israelites were slaves in Egypt. The whole nation of Israel was slave. They were in, at the, kind of at the pinnacle of their slavery in Egypt. And the Egyptian king is about to, to say something here. He says, the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, whose names were Shifra and Pua, when you are helping the Hebrew women during childbirth on the delivery stool, if you see that the baby is a boy, kill him, because he wanted to wipe out the Israelites and diminish their power. Okay? He, they were his slaves, but he still was a bit intimidated. If you see that it's a boy, kill him. If it's a girl, let her live. This is their... They are slaves. These midwives are slaves. This is the king. Do you think he has any physical authority over them? Come on. This day and age, do you think he has some physical authority over them? He wants to kill babies. There's nothing to him. To take their lives would be nothing either. But look what they did. The midwives, however, feared God and did not do what the king of Egypt had told them to do. They let the boys live. And then if you read verse 21, it says, And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families of their own. They feared God more than they feared the king of Egypt. Amen? That's what happens when you have fear of the Lord that trumps or is way stronger than fear of man. Here's a cool thing. If you don't feel like you have fear of the Lord, and you wonder, I don't know if I have any fear of the Lord. Fear of the Lord can be learned. This is really encouraging for me. If we read Deuteronomy 31, it's again Old Testament. Moses is recounting this time where he is um, he's giving instructions to the Israelite, uh, Israel, Israelites. And this is what he says. When all Israel comes... That means they're going to have to gather together. He gives them this instruction. You shall read this law before them in their hearing. Assemble the people, men, women, children, and the foreigners residing in your towns. Actually, in some translations, it says aliens, which actually makes it kind of sound funny. But, uh, then you'd have to be from Grunthal or something. But anyway, men, women, and children, and the foreigners residing in your towns so that they can listen and what? Learn to fear the Lord, your God, and follow carefully all the words of this law. Their children, who do not know this law, must hear it and learn to fear the Lord, your God. It's something you can actually learn. And you can learn it by studying Scripture. And meditating on Scripture is a good place to start. And you might be thinking, really? I can learn fear of the Lord by reading Scripture I'm going to give you an example of how that could work, and I'm going to take a little bit of time to do it, okay? One of the truths in Scripture is that judgment... Who is the judge again? Is he the king? Jesus is sitting on the throne. It's a judgment throne. Judgment begins with God's household. So if we read in Scripture, 1 Peter 4.17 says, for instance, for it is time for judgment 
to begin with God's household. Could we just read that one more time? It is, for it is time for judgment to begin with And if it begins with us, what will the outcome be for those who do not obey the gospel of God? Do we think about that? Do you often, when you see the news and you see something terrible going on in the world and you think, man, God's gonna, he's gonna come and judge you guys one day. The Bible says that's actually not the right way to look at it. Where's the judgment gonna start? Right here in church. And this is actually something that comes out in Scripture quite a few times. Do you guys remember Ananias and Sapphira? Who who is Ananias and Sapphira? You're on the right track. I know that you're thinking of the right story. They were. I'll, I'll fill in the blanks. Okay, they're a couple in the church. If they were in our church, I bet you they would be the most generous people in the church. Do you know how I know this? Because the story that we know about them, they were so generous that they sold a field and they only kept part of it for themselves, but most of it they gave to the Lord. How does that compare to any of us? Okay, let's just think about that for a second. They were generous people in the church. So what's the problem? It's not a problem of being generous but they were a generous people in the church who lied to God. And when Ananias came in, Peter called him out for his sinful lying to God, and Ananias died right at Peter's feet, and then they came and carried him out. He was in the church. And then Sapphira, his wife, comes in. Exactly the same thing happens. Peter calls her out, and what happens to her? She's dead in the church. The young men came in, they carried her out, and where did they bury her? Right beside her husband. Where did judgment start? These weren't the most wicked people on the planet. These were generous people in the church who lied to God, and judgment starts in the church. Another example is communion. We do communion 13 times a year here in Pansy Chapel, kind of at our, that's our minimum, and then if you want to do it at Bible studies and whatever else, you can do that extra. What we do 13 times a year, the, the Bible instructs us to take communion and to remember Jesus' body and his sacrifice and his blood. And we do that. But in 1 Corinthians 11, do you know that it warns us what not to do when we take communion? This is the New Testament. Do you know what it says? When we, if we were to take communion flippantly, not really caring what we're doing, not really considering who Jesus is and what he did for us, and we just kind of willy-nilly take communion, what's the result? People get weak, people get sick, some even die. This is what it says in the New Testament, and where is that? That's not in the world somewhere. That's not the evil people. That's in the church, because that's where judgment starts. I want to read you a story about Ezekiel. There's a really fascinating book in the Bible called Ezekiel. I'm going to read, I'll I'll tell you what happens in chapter 8, and then we're going to read a little bit in chapter 9. In chapter 8, the Lord gives Ezekiel a vision. The Lord, the Spirit of the Lord, took Ezekiel by the hair and then gives, takes him in a vision to show him four different times places in Jerusalem. And he looks in Jerusalem and sees all these detestable things that the Israelites are doing right in God's city. 
and it was disgusting. And then the Lord says, therefore, because of that, here's how I'm going to deal with them. Chapter 9. This is what Ezekiel says. He's describing this vision. Then I heard him call out in a loud voice. He's hearing God. Bring near those who are appointed to execute judgment on the city, each with a weapon in his hand. And I saw six men coming from the direction of the upper gate, which is the wall around Jerusalem, which faces north, each with a deadly weapon in his hand. And with them, with these six guys, there was a man clothed in linen who had a writing kit at his side. They came in and stood beside the bronze altar. How many guys? Seven. Six plus one. Okay? The six guys, just go back, just keep that first slide there. The six guys are standing there. What's in their hands? Weapons. What kind of weapons? Deadly weapons. What, what are deadly weapons? Swords. Spears. Maybe a mace or a club. What are they there for? To kill. This is the vision that Ezekiel is seeing. They are there for one purpose. Those six guys are there to kill. And with them is a guy with some writing utensils. I don't know what that is, a feather and a pen and a thing or whatever to make marks. I don't know exactly what that looks like. I don't know. But he's got a writing utensil. He could have had a sharpie in his hand. I don't know. But he's got something to write with. Let's keep reading. Then the Lord called to the man clothed in linen who had the writing kit at his side and said to him, Go throughout the city of Jerusalem and put a mark on the foreheads of those who, what? Grieve and lament over all the detestable things that are done in it. Because there were some people in the city who were disgusted over all that sin in God's city. And so God, in His graciousness, goes through the city putting a mark on those people, putting a mark on them so that, that these six guys would know who not to kill. Let's keep reading. As I listened, he said to the others, follow him through the city and, and what? Follow him through the city, you're following the guy with the marker, kill without showing pity or compassion. Slaughter the old men, the young men and women, the mothers and children, but do not touch anyone who has the mark. Thank you, mercy of the Lord. You guys read the yellow. So they began with the old men who were in front of the temple. When we understand who God is, we can understand a little bit of who God is just by reading Scripture. And when the Holy Spirit makes that sink into our head, we can actually begin to have a fear of the Lord. I don't know about you, but when I read stuff like this, it wells up in me a fear of the Lord. Because I know that judgment starts here, not out there. So, then when I go back to Ephesians 5.21, and I recognize that I'm commanded to submit to one another, that's someone else that I have a relationship with. The rest of the chapter talks about marriage. So this is pretty obvious. I'm commanded to submit to other people for what motivation? Reverence for who? Was it reverence for my spouse? Guys, is it reverence for my spouse? No. has nothing to do with them. I'm supposed to submit to them for reverence for the king. 
who's going to judge starting in the church. And that is my motivator to submit to them or to someone else I have a relationship with. Does that make sense? Suddenly, the fear of the Lord is now my motivation. Is that clear? But that's just one. I also want to point out out this. You can submit to your spouse, for instance. I'm picking on marriage for whatever reason. But you you can actually submit to your spouse for selfish reasons. It's not uncommon in marriage to submit to your spouse because you actually want something in return. That's not uncommon. Agreed? I got to be careful I don't do that. My motivator should be fear of the Lord. The Lord says so? Yes, sir. We also noticed, I also want to point out about fear of the Lord two weeks ago or so, when Mike and Trish shared here, there was fears coming up in their life in the future that are fears of the unknown. But those fears of the unknown have become overwhelmed by their fear of the Lord, which has motivated them into action. Does it make sense? Amen. Number two, love for the Lord. That's a good motivator. According to Scripture, here's a test. If I have love for the Lord, what am I motivated to do? Obey. <laughs> Let's read it. I could give you a whole bunch of uh, uh, verses here, but we're just going to read two. If anybody obeys his word, love for God is truly made complete in them. We could flip that around and say, in fact, this is to keep his commands. And so love for God simply is obeying. That's actually our motivation for obeying should simply be love for God. And so when, the, when God gives us an instruction, for instance... Like doing good to those who hate you. We could obey that and do good to those who hate us, kind of hoping that God's going to give them a sideball curve and, and hurt them or something. That would be selfish motivation. What we should be doing, we should be obeying that commandment and doing good to those who hate us because of our love for God. When He commands us to bless those who curse us, We should be doing it for love for God, not hoping that he's going to somehow get revenge on them. When he tells us to pray for those who mistreat us, our motivation shouldn't be in spite and resentment, hoping that God's going to get them later. Our motivation should be love for God. Because we have love for God, we desire to obey. Love you, Lord. Number three, I want to be clear here. Love of the Lord should also be a motivator. It's different than love for the Lord. What's love for the Lord? Ryan just mentioned it. When we we respond to God's love, we have love for the Lord. I understand that he died for me, understand that he sacrificed everything he could possibly sacrifice for me, and all the things that he's given to me, and I can't help but respond to that love. That's love for the Lord. What's love of the Lord? 
We just taught a whole series, like the coverall series, that talked about the love of the Lord. What's the love of the Lord? Putting on the new you. Suddenly, if I have love of the Lord in me, it starts, it's his emotion starts becoming my emotion. Suddenly, my character is actually changing to become like his, and he has an exceptional character, characteristic of love. And that starts to well up in me, and now I start operating out of love of the Lord. Love for the Lord is response. Love of the Lord is like God's emotion coming, becoming my emotion. And here's how it's explained. 1 John 3.16. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. We ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Because the love of God is exactly that. When it starts to well up in you and you see somebody in need, it's like you can't even help it. You're helping them. It's costing you something. Who cares? I just, I have to do it. That's the love of God welling up in you, and that is good motivation. Amen? Oh, that's good. Let's go to number four. Peace of the Lord. I put of the Lord there in brackets because I wanted to point something out. We're not just talking about, like Eve, I should have done that probably for the love as well, but when we're talking about love, we're not talking about just the same love that the world talks about. Hey man, love your neighbor, whatever. Hey man, let's just, let's just love each other, whatever. The world has weird, abstract kind of ideas of what love is. We're talking about love for the Lord, love of the Lord, and when we're talking about peace, I'm not just talking about general peace, nice feelings and all that. I'm talking about peace of the Lord, which is different, and I'll explain what that is because here's what we don't sometimes realize is that peace of the Lord is incredibly motivating. I think sometimes we have this thought that peace is like the absence of motivation. No, that's boring. Peace is different. Now, let me explain a little bit. Isaiah 53 verse 5 says this. He was pierced. This is Jesus. He was pierced for our transgressions. This is our king. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. This is the essence of the gospel. Peace is an emotion. One of the purposes of emotion is to move and motivate us to do the things that God calls us to do. Suppose... You have this niggling feeling in you that you, should, you might be being called to be a volunteer in the church. If you are riddled with anxiety and you're scared and worried, even if you're just really unsettled about it, what's, it gonna motiv- what's, what's that anxiety going to motivate you to do? Oh, pr- pray, yes. Okay, good people will pray. I was, I was thinking if I'm riddled with anxiety, it should lead us to pray. That was a good answer. But what I see sometimes it does, it it makes us like, what? Cringe, hide, stick our head in the sand. We're paralyzed. Ah, scared. That's what it does. What does peace do? It's a motivator. When God says go over here and you actually have the full peace of the Lord, you just go over there. 
I'll explain. I'm going to build this up a little bit more. Suppose you are entering a life storm. You guys know what I mean with life storm. Suppose you are about to enter a life storm, or maybe you're already walking through a life storm. Give you some examples. Suppose that you are sick, or someone close to you is sick. Suppose you've recently gone and experienced the death of a loved one. Maybe you are in a financial storm where you don't see an out. Maybe you're in a relationship storm. Those are life storms. If we would just imagine that the storm was over here somewhere, and the storm was like a physical storm of hurricane winds, driving rain in that wind, lightning and thunder, and maybe some sleet and hail, and if I'm over here in my life and I'm headed to this storm, if I am riddled with anxiety and worry, what is my posture going to be? Like, what would be logical? Yeah, I'm going to be scared. And it's going to be, it's going to at the very least paralyze me, and I'm going to panic and maybe try and go that way. But what I'm telling you is that if you have peace of the Lord, you can actually just walk like this right into the storm. And you're thinking, that doesn't even make sense. And that's exactly it. Philippians 4, 7, that's exactly how it describes peace of the Lord. It says, and the peace of God transcends all understanding. It doesn't make sense. That's peace of the Lord. It's motivating. So motivating, you can actually see somebody walk into a storm and you're like, what here? What are they? How is that even possible? It doesn't make sense. Yeah, that's right. You got peace of the Lord. It's the same kind of peace that Jesus had when he was arrested. He had reason to worry. He prayed drops, sweat, sweating drops of blood. But they came to arrest him, and he just went. Put your swords away. Quit cutting people's ears off. And I'm going. Why? He's got peace of God with him, and it defies logic. That's peace of the Lord. Very motivating. Number five, joy of the Lord. <laughs> Anybody experience joy of the Lord? Shoot, I would love to hear stories. Yes, I know some of you have experienced joy of the Lord. And those of you who have, you know exactly where this is going. I could just tell you, joy of the Lord is motivating. And you would say, amen. Because it's just like love and peace in that it's God's emotion, but when it wells in us, and it's again like putting on the new you, and you start having joy over things that the world would go, what? Why are you smiling right now? It's just joy of the Lord. I don't know what's, I don't even, it's illogical actually, but I love the Lord. It's, it wells up in you, and his joy actually begins to overtake your life. I'll give you some examples from scripture. Acts 5. This is a good one. They called the apostles in and had them flogged. What does that mean again? Yeah, whipped with what? Like a little bull whip or something? What did you say? A cat of nine tails? I don't know. I haven't heard that before, but that sounds about right because it's, a, it's like a handle with lots of whips on it, maybe some 
broken bones or nails or whatever. And one of those is going to pull out some flesh. Okay? So they called the apostles in and had them flogged. Then they ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus, and then they let them go. The apostles left the Sanhedrin. That doesn't make sense. The apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. They're rejoicing. I don't, probably weren't slapping each other on the back because that would have hurt, but they're looking at each other and going, this is awesome. We were allowed to suffer for Jesus. And anybody looking from the outside would go, you guys are nuts. Yeah, we got the joy of the Lord. Amen? Is, if you know the rest of the story, is it motivating? What did they just have happen to them? They were just flogged and ordered, don't speak about Jesus anymore. And the next verse says, day after day, in the temple courts and house to house, they never stopped teaching and proclaiming that Jesus is the Lord. Amen? It's motivating. Let's read in Acts 16. This is a pretty good one too. The crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas. And the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten with rods. After they had been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison. And the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. When he had received these orders, he put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet in What would you do if that was you? Just think about that for a second. What would a logical person do? <laughs> Cry. Start blaming. Be a little angry. How would your prayers come out? Yeah, pretty whiny. Like, really, God? Let's keep reading. About midnight, this has been a bit of a day already. About midnight, Paul and Silas were, what is it? Say it louder. Okay, we'll keep reading. Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. Come on, that doesn't make sense. They were just whipped, stripped, beaten, flogged. And now they're locked in their stocks in the most highest security part of the jail. And what do they do? Praying and singing. And you see where the period is? What's the rest of the verse? Do you guys know? About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were Someone said it. They were listening. Listening to them. You ever thought about that? These guys are so motivated by joy of the Lord, they have just been whipped and flogged and beaten. Now they're singing here in the middle of the jail. There's other people listening to them, and guess what? They don't care. 
Christian, I've been in the church for 43 years. I know that you can get together with a Bible study group for years and they're scared to pray. Some people are, and that's fine. Some people are shy. That's no problem. You can get, I struggle with this, this one here, singing in front of people. This is actually one of the reasons I stand in the front here, because then there's not as, much, as many people in front of me. It's a little hint, okay? Then you can just sing to the Lord. But actually what I should do is not worry about what other people think, because if I am struck by joy of the Lord, guess what? I don't care if anyone's listening. It's going to change the way you pray. If you are struck by joy of the Lord, it will change how you pray. You won't care if anyone hears you. Who cares what they think about your prayer? I got joy of the Lord. He's overwhelming me, and it's, my heart is so full of gratitude. Lord, I'm just focused on you. I love you. I can hardly stand it, and it just kind of comes out. Same with singing. You guys with me? If you're struck by joy of the Lord, it's motivating. God is so good. Right? God is so good. God is so good. He's so good to me. Who cares what other people think? If you have joined the Lord with you, you'll shatter right through the Satan's little traps there. He wants you to think about other people and have fear of man and all that. Forget that. If you have never experienced joy with the Lord, you should just ask him. You can have some. It's pretty motivating. And it reminds me of Jesus. That's number six. There's a scripture that connects Jesus with joy of the Lord and anticipation of things coming up in our future. Hebrews 12, verse 2 says it really well. It says, for the joy set before him. Can we read that for a second? You say the L. For the set before him. So Jesus was experiencing joy and anticipating joy that was set before him. That's what motivated him to endure the cross, scorning its shame, and he ends up sitting down at the right hand of the throne of God. He's anticipating something in the future, and it is so good, it motivates him over here. We see it in Hebrews. I thought this was interesting that Dennis also read this in Sunday school this morning. Hebrews 11, 13 to 16. Hebrews 11, if you don't know, is like the Hall of Faith chapter. If we had a hall of faith with people's pictures of these are the most exemplary people in the Bible, like if you want to have faith, have faith like these people. It lists them by name. And then it says all these people were still living by faith when they died. So even people with faith die, okay? They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance. They had received promises and they're like, it's over there. They can see it. They're welcoming it from a distance and admitting that they were foreigners and strangers on earth. They were what? Longing for a better country, a heavenly one. That's where their focus is. They're like, oh man, one day I'm going to be over there where I belong. Is that motivating over here? 
come on. If you read the rest of the chapter, verse 39, let's say. I'm going to tell you what it says before verse 39, okay? Before verse 39, it starts talking about some of these people. It's talking about people that were involved when the walls of Jericho fell down. Took some faith. Took some faith when people passed through the Red Sea. Took some faith. Dead people were raised back to life. Some people were tortured. Some people were flogged. Some people were cut in half. Some people were imprisoned, destitute, persecuted, and mistreated. Those people had faith, and they were all commended for their faith, and yet none of them received what had been promised since God had planned something better for us so that only together with us would they be made perfect. Those people were anticipating something in the future. That's the same thing that we should be participating. Anticipating in the future, which is number six, heaven, Jesus, his presence. I should have put another slide here. Just go back till you get to like number six on the list. Anticipation of his presence. In other words, heaven. But not just heaven in a weird way. It's actually about Jesus' presence, and that is incredibly motivating. It, well, it should be to us if we want to live like they did in Hebrews chapter 11. If you don't think that you've ever experienced those, I would just, let's just ask, let's just tell the Lord that and be honest. Because if we can experience those, any of those or all of those, genuinely in our hearts that it actually becomes the core of who we are that's going to be motivating for how we live amen that would mean that jesus is actually on the throne and we're actually submitting to him as king and is that going to result in a boring dry religious life When you look to Jesus and you report in the morning like this, motivated by those six things, it's not going to be boring. Let's pray. Lord, I just love you. And yet, Lord, I know that I'm growing in it because there's more that I don't even understand. Could you just come and help us, Lord? Could, you, could we, Jesus, be motivated by things that are true? We want to be motivated by you, Jesus. I want you to be sitting on the throne in my life. I want to take orders from you, Lord, and it is my privilege to serve you, Lord. We love you, Jesus. We have fear of you, Jesus. And yet we're drawn to you, Jesus, because you're so loving and kind and merciful at the same time. And yet it's terrifying to be in your presence. We are awed by you, Lord. We're filled with your love. Jesus, we actually can see it in our lives when we treat other people like that. Lord, I pray that you would open our eyes to see that we are becoming filled with your love. Open our eyes, Lord, that we would have correct and pure motivation, Lord. Amen.